Open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. It's November 16th. Where in the world did the last 12 months go? A year ago, my grandson Titus was just born, and now he is rejecting me with the same kind of determination that Marshawn Lynch exhibits when he runs to the end zone, throwing off tackles left and right. No, you're not getting me. No. <laughs> At least he doesn't cry, so we're making some progress. 2014 has flown by, and we are just 11 days away from Thanksgiving. Most of us are familiar with the story of the pilgrims and the giving of thanks, but we're a little less familiar with the words of George Washington as the first president who said, in 1789, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. We could just stop there and preach a sermon on that. To obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor, whereas both houses of Congress have, by their joint committee, requested me to, quote, recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been able to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted." for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge, and in general for all the great and various favors which he has been pleased to confer upon us. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know how closely George Washington knew God. I don't know if he knew Jesus Christ as his Savior, but he knew one thing. We need to thank God for what he has done for us. Thanksgiving began as an event to praise God for his blessings, and it was later institutionalized uh, as a day to thank God for his blessings. It's not just about being thankful. Uh, you know, if you, if you watch TV, you'll see TV shows where they all sit around the table and they say, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? That's not what Thanksgiving is about. 
as George Washington put, it's about recognizing the beneficent author of all good. You can say, I'm happy to have a full plate and a full stomach without ever talking about God. Giving thanks for our blessings is a big part of worshiping God, but there's more to worshiping God than that. As true believers in God through faith in Christ, we ought to be the best at giving thanks and the best at every aspect of worship. But unfortunately for many believers, worship has come to mean singing in church. And that's not what it means to God. And so we want to spend some time today and next week trying to understand a little bit better that God deserves our worship. He, those songs in church are important, but he deserves what I've chosen to call constant worship. Please follow as I read from Colossians 1, starting in verse 13. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, by Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before, he is more important than all things. And in him, all things literally hold together or consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, he might have the preeminence. If we back up to verse 16, we understand that the absolute foundation of worship, which is this, Our purpose for existence is to honor our creator. By him, all things were created. Now, if if you read all that God says about creation, you will see references to God creating, and here you see references to Christ creating, and, and our tendency is to say, as very precise Americans, which was it? The answer is yes. God was involved in creation, God the Father. God the Son was involved in creation. And if you read Genesis, God the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. God doesn't act alone on practically anything. And so Christ was intimately involved in the act of creation, as was God the Father and the Spirit. They were, everything that was created was created by Him, by them, and for him, which means our purpose for existence is to honor our creator. We were created for the creator. All things were created for him. Now, if, if you've been paying attention to our American culture, what is everything supposed to be about? according to our American culture. Me. I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as I choose, when I choose, how I choose, where I choose, and don't you get in the way. And because we're raised in that culture, 
even when we come to Christ and come into the church, we, we carry that with us and we think, what is the church doing for me today? What is worship doing for me? Do you see the paradox there? If worship is supposed to be about giving glory to our creator, and yet we say, what's it doing for me? Somehow we're missing the point. Our purpose for existence is to honor our creator. God didn't sling us out into space like parents sending their child off to college saying, have a good time. And he's not up there going, wow, look at that. Wow, look what he did. He created us for him. If we go all the way to the end of the Bible, book of Revelation, we read this. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor. The word, the word glory simply means to say something positive about, if you will, to, to, uh, to exclaim how, how good he is. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things. And by your will they exist. In Colossians it said that Christ is the one who holds things together. That's kind of parallel here. By your will they exist. Do you know why you woke up breathing today? Why? By, because, because Christ is making the, the cycle of life and the oxygen and all of that stuff happen. And he let you keep breathing. One of the problems with our American culture is we think we really are supposed to be the, the king of all things or the queen of all things. And when God comes along and says, I am the king of all things, we bristle at that. We go, wait a minute. We wouldn't quite say it, but we almost want to say, who do you think you are? <laughs> well, God thinks he's the creator of all things. <laughs> if if I had started this sermon by saying, how many of you believe God created the world? You go, yeah, we believe in creation. Well, then that means God created you. I made a new uh, desktop and a small cabinet for under the desk to go with some other things that I have there in my home office. Um, I built the last one, and uh, unfortunately, the contractor didn't get it right. And the Formica had buckled and, you know, whatever. <laughs> Chalk it up to learning. So I built another one. I got a beautiful piece of Formica, a nice piece of plywood over at Windsor Plywood. And I went to Home Depot and I got some other things to go and I made this little cabinet and got it all installed and rearranged everything. And, and it's uh, beautiful and functional. Now, if... If, if you were to come over to my home and say, hey, I want to see that desk you built, and I brought you in and I showed you the desk, and, and, and you said, wow, that really is good looking, and uh, boy, that little thing, that little cabinet's got those soft closed hinges, you know. Mm, goes just like that. Isn't that, isn't that lovely? And, and if the desk rose up and said, I am beautiful, aren't I? You know, after you got over the shock of that, you go, what are you talking about? You didn't create yourself. You didn't make your own wood. You didn't make the laminate or the glue or the varnish or the stain. You didn't put it all together. 
You know, it, it, it's crazy, but it's not crazy. The essence of arrogance is for a created thing to exalt itself instead of its creator. And that is the fundamental truth of worship that we've got to get a hold to. God created us for him. And he wants us to be worshiping him. This is exactly what Romans 1 talks about. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest or plain in them for God has shown it to them For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his external power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him. Nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals. They knew God. God has made the world such that even a guy like Bill Gates in recent days has spoken to the issue of looking at the world saying, it does seem like there must be something behind this. I mean, he spoke in the most careful terms possible, but he, you know, that's, that's huge progress for a guy like Bill. And God has made the world that way. And he's made us, our physical bodies, that way. And anybody with any real openness says there had to be intelligence here. And God says that there were people... There have been people, there continue to be people who come to a point where they say there, there has to be a God here. But when they come to that point, what do they do? Do they say, you are God and I'm thanking you? No, they turn inward as people do today and say man is the measure of all things. We don't typically think of people as worshiping other people. We don't see that in our country too much. But when we say man is the measure of all things, when we say whatever I can see and touch and taste, that's what's real, then we are saying somehow we have taken the place of God. The essence of arrogance is for a created thing to exalt itself instead of its creator. The essence of worship is for a created being to honor its creator. That really is the heart of the matter. Am I going to honor the one who made me? Uh, uh, Girls, you couldn't have picked a better song to sing today. I was made to love you, made to adore you, made just for you. I was made to love and be loved by you. That's, That's it. I was made for you. This makes worship a mandatory activity, not a suggestion. This makes worship a central activity and not an add-on in life. This means we need to understand this and participate in worship. It needs to be constant in our lives. Look back with me again at Colossians 1 and back up. Um, 
to verse 9. <clears throat> For this reason, you know, this is, this is Paul's introduction as he's writing to the church in Colossae. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we don't cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. When we move from just our creation as human beings to our creation as Christians, which we normally would call our salvation, we need to understand that we have a purpose for our salvation, and it's to honor the Savior. Again, being American and thinking that the world revolves around me, our temptation is to think salvation is about me. I get to go to heaven, not to hell. I get to have God's help in my life right now. I, 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 I. Whereas God says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. And then if we, as we would read on in the passage, again, for him, for him. Every created thing owes worship to its creator, but those who have come to faith in Christ have a double responsibility to worship. We don't often refer to God as our Savior, but it's several times in the New Testament, including Jude. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power. That's a statement of worship. God my Savior is wise and and he deserves glory and majesty. I'm going to give him, I'm going to tell him he's powerful. God is our Savior and the purpose of our salvation is is to honor him. Turn back with me to uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Just a few pages back there from where you're at. Ephesians, chapter 1. I want you to listen for the phrases that tell us the purpose of these blessings. Uh, there's There's a long passage in in verses 3 through 14, that lists our blessings. We're not going to read it all per se, but we're going to follow through here and find some of these purpose statements. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has given us everything he can spiritually. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of sons or to becoming sons of God by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. 
See, God didn't save you just so you can say, hey, I'm going to heaven and now I can live my life any way I want. God saved you so that you would bring glory to his grace. Drop down to verse 11. In him also we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you having believed you were sealed or protected with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We get great benefits in our salvation. But the purpose is to glorify God. God saved you to demonstrate his character. God chose us for salvation. God makes us holy through the sacrifice of Christ. God gives us the standing of sons of his. He paid our debt and removed us from the slavery of sin. He shared his truth with us. He brings all kinds of people into the body of Christ. And those are the blessings enumerated by this passage. And he does it to show his greatness. Thanksgiving is 11 days away. That makes Christmas 39 days away from a couple days ago when I wrote this. I guess it would be maybe 36 or so now. We've already started buying Christmas presents at our house. Guess who for? We'll know we're done when the living room floor is half covered in wrapped things. Now, why do we do that? Because we love our grandkids and our kids too. What evidence of love does the God of our eternal salvation deserve? Many parents in the world at Christmas time will be concerned to get a good gift for their children so they know that they love them. What gift does God deserve? the one who has saved us for all of eternity, saved us from hell to heaven, and given us a wonderful life now. We owe God a debt of honor and glory and worship, which we will be giving for all of eternity. Listen again to the book of Revelation. And, and this is a description of a scene in heaven that is repeated from, you know, I, I don't... You could read this and and think it seems to be going on all the time, then you could also seem that maybe there are intermissions. But this is the scene that we see. They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
and you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, which is a reference to us, the body of Christ, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's a biblical way to say, I have no idea how many people there were, but it was a ton. And they were saying, how many of you can't carry a tune? No, don't raise your hand. <laughs> you don't have to sing to worship God in heaven. They were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. That could even be indicating that the people in hell are worshiping God. Because Philippians 2 says there's coming a day when every knee will bow. I'm not saying that they're getting saved out of hell. I'm saying that even those people are going, Christ is the one. Even though they'd be saying it in condemnation. That's what eternity is going to be like. We're going to get a chance to thank Christ face to face. There have been a few men in my life who have, who have made a significant impact, and one of them is this fellow here. Um, it's, a, it's a cell phone picture, forgive the quality, but name is Randy Patton. He's a fellow who taught me how to be a counselor. He's the fellow who helped me to, to learn some things and to grow and to progress. He used to be the head of the whole National uh, Biblical Counseling Organization. But it's been a number of years since I went through that training process, and I haven't seen him for a number of years. And he was at the counseling conference that Sue and I were just at uh, down in California a couple months ago. And I said, I have to find Randy Patton so I can say thank you for the investment you made in my life. That's all I wanted, just to say thank you to him. He deserves that. He's invested in me. Someday, someday we're going to get to say thank you to Christ face to face. That's going to be a cool thing. Until then, we get to say thank you to him, not face to face, but heart to heart, life to life. We have a sense of his presence because he is in us and we are in him and so we need to understand that we were created to worship, we were saved to worship, and the sanctification or, this, or the change of our body is what facilitates worship. From 1 Corinthians six nineteen, a verse that I, I know you're familiar with, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? You know, as I, as I studied this week and thought about this, I got, I got just a little angry. I got a little angry at all of the people who don't know the Lord who like to use the phrase, my body is a temple. 
And you know, when it's used in the, in the common society around us, what it means is my body is mine and I'm supposed to take care of it and it's kind of special and unique and so on and so forth. And that is not what this verse is about whatsoever. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The point of the scripture is this. You don't have to go anywhere to worship God. You are the temple. We are the temple. Now, part of what you need to understand is to take your mind back to the Old Testament. You remember the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and they came out into the wilderness, and God said, now I'm going to give you a plan to build a tent that you can worship me in. And then we we moved down the road a, a few more hundred years, and And God gave Solomon plans to build a temple, and Solomon built an incredibly ornate temple. And in there was one small area, like a small room, maybe like the room across the hall, and that was the Holy of Holies. That was the place that pictured the presence of God. God God was never limited to that room, of course. he's He's bigger than the universe, But he made his presence known in that little room and up above that temple and above the tabernacle. And then there was another room where where certain aspects of worship took place. And then there was the outer court where the sacrifices were made. This was the place of worship. If you were a Jew in that time, a a God-believing Jew, you went to the temple to worship. You brought your animal, you brought your grain, whatever it was you were offering for the certain sacrifice you brought it to the temple and here paul writes to the corinthians we are the temple you are the temple that doesn't mean that the organized body of christ is unimportant just the opposite look at this coming to him as a living stone coming to christ rejected by men but chosen by god and precious you also christian are a living stone being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There are two senses in which you are the temple. First of all, you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But together in the body of Christ, it is like a group of stones being built up into a magnificent joint temple to worship God. Individually, we are a place for worship. And corporately, we are a place for worship. That's one of the reasons we don't tend to call this room the sanctuary. Because it's not a sanctuary until you come in. And and it would be better to say, you are the sanctuary. You are the place of worship. When we go to the park and have church... It's a sanctuary. When we gather in a home for a Bible study, it's a holy place. We are the place of worship. And not only that, not only are we the temple, but we are the priest in this temple. The sanctification or the salvation of our soul authorizes us to worship God. Again, the first people to hear these words would have just been shocked by them just as they were to hear that they were the temple and not this place in Jerusalem, now look what he says. You, as living stones, being built up a 
spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Who were the priests in the Old Testament? They had to be from the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. The the non-Aaronic Levites tended to the temple, you know, some of the uh, auxiliary duties to keep it running, but the ones who were of the, the children of Aaron, they were the ones who were the priests. And now Peter... Peter, the, the apostle to the Jewish people primarily, but also who he opened it up to the Gentiles, he's writing this book. He starts by saying to, the, to the, the, the Jewish people who are scattered abroad, he says, you are priests. And they would have heard that and went, what? I'm not from the tribe of Levi. We are all priests to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, he says it again. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. We are the temple, and we are the priests. That's what these verses are about right here in Hebrews 4. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Do you understand that that verse is talking about coming into the presence of God? Now again, in our American society, we've been so used to the idea of, of, of sort of democracy. We're all equal. It's not quite so revolutionary for us to think about coming into the presence of God because we don't think of the president as as a king or as an omnipotent potentate, hold your comments there. I know where your mind's going. At least we're not supposed to think that way. And so it's a little easier for us to get our mind around that, but for the Jewish people to say, we're going to come right into the holy of holies? We can't do that. Only the high priest can do that. And that's what Peter is saying. Peter, uh, Peter wrote earlier, you're a royal priesthood. You're not just a priesthood, you're a royal priesthood. And so you can come boldly into God's throne room and ask for help. Down in Hebrews 10, having boldness to enter the holiest or the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil he's talking about is the curtain that separated the holy place out there from the holy of holies. And the scripture says that when Jesus died on the cross, that that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that God had done it, not man. And it was God saying, come on in, kids. Come on in and talk to me. Wow, not only are we the temple, we're the priests. And the prime sacrifice God desires from us is found in Romans chapter 12. Turn there with me, please. Romans 12, the prime sacrifice that God wants. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, 
acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Present your body a living sacrifice. The imagery, again, of the Old Testament worship is real, real prominent here. It's real plain. And, and the word, uh, therefore, is one of those really important words in the Scripture that, that grabs a hold of all of the stuff that's just been said and, and sort of serves it on a platter, like we would say, the moral of the story is, because of all of this truth here, here's what you need to know. And the Apostle Paul, with this one word, is gathering up everything he said in 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And he summarizes it with this phrase, the mercies of God. What does he mean by the mercies of God? What he means is all of the stuff that he's talked about in these first 11 chapters. First of all, he talked about sin and how everybody is sinful and some have just given themselves over to sin. But he comes along and says, but God is merciful and he's provided a savior and your sins can be forgiven. And then he goes into the Christian life and he says, you can learn to live above sin. You can be free from sin. And then he goes into a section on Israel and says, God set Israel aside and has grafted in the Gentiles. And, and, uh, and, and then he comes over here and he says, because of all of this that God has done, how should you respond you should respond with the complete dedication of your life. The image of the Old Testament sacrifice is used, and anytime Paul would have used the word sacrifice, his Jewish listeners immediately would have had the image of that sacrifice being made in the Old Testament. And the worshiper would have brought his animal, and the animal would have been given to one of the Levites, one of the priests, and they would, they would kill the animal, and they would take some of the blood. The priest would sprinkle some of the blood. You know, the meat was taken and, and eaten and so on. There was a whole process that went through. But here's, here's the key idea. When the animal came and was sacrificed, it lost all future control of its life. Now, I know the animal was put to death, so it stopped living, but the, but the illustration he's drawing just has to do with that. It's the life is gone, and the animal cannot do anything on its own again. And he adds this word living to the word sacrifice to say, Christian, if you really understand how great God has been in your salvation, then the response to that is put your life in God's hands Give it to him. Dedicate it to him. The Christian who desires to honor God with their life puts it on the altar and surrenders control to God. See, God doesn't want you to die. There's no particular service to God that way uh, for most of us. But he wants you to put your life on the altar and put it under his control. That's what Paul meant when he said, for me to live is Christ. When we think about the, the concept of worship, of which thanksgiving is a part, the beginning, the foundation is to say, is my life on the altar? 
old song my mom and dad used to sing back in the day. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? That's the question we have to answer. Is my life on the altar or am I in control of my life? You see, do you want to serve God? Do you want to worship God? Then the starting point is to say I'm dedicating my life to him. When Paul uses the word body, that's I've put the word life in place of it sometimes we're tempted to kind of split hairs in our technical american society and say well i'll give my body to god but not my mind that's not what at all what paul is indicating what he's saying is your body is the thing you live in and last time i checked you can't do anything without it you go here you go there you do this you do that it's your life what does a living sacrifice look like well, according to Romans 12:2, it looks like life transformation through mental renewal. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If you lay your life on the altar, then what should start coming out of that is transformation. I'm here to live for you. I'm here to live for you. What would you have me to do? There is sin to put off. There's righteousness to put on. How am I to change? What am I supposed to do? And so the, the godly life is the worshipful life. It's, it's, really, it's quite simple, but completely exhaustive or, or thorough. The transformed life is the worshipful life. And then I would just summarize uh, the, the living sacrifice also this way. It's heart devotion before worship activity. For you, this is David, you know, writing in the Psalms long before Christ came. You do not desire sacrifice, and he's talking about putting that animal on the altar and killing it and, and, and the whole burnt offering and all of that, that whole physical thing out of the Old Testament. You don't desire sacrifice. And you think, wait a minute, David. God said, yes, you're supposed to offer sacrifices. Sacrifices for sin, sacrifices for thanksgiving, and so on. He says, no, you don't want a sacrifice, or else I would give it. He's the king of Israel. He'd give a sacrifice anytime he wanted to. You don't desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These you will not despise. One of my favorite uh, written Bible teachers, I never heard him in person, I wish I had, his name is Robert Gromacki, written a lot of commentaries on Scripture. He's with the Lord now. He said this, Worship must be a genuine response of a grateful heart according to the truth of God's Word. We should not sing or pray thinking that those activities are worship. Rather, we should sing and pray because we are worshiping. Our heart and our dedication and our our transformation, our, our, our total flow of our life should just be 
on the altar, living the way God wants us to live, which means at times we will pray and at times we will sing and at times we will do other things. But the underlying foundation is that we're worshiping. We are the temple, we are the priests, and we are the sacrifice. Next week, we're going to look at some of those sacrifices in particular and understand some of the specific things God does want us to give, but it starts here. When I was a volunteer firefighter, I responded to a fire call that turned out to be sort of limited into a detached garage, and fire wasn't so large, so we had a couple small lines on it, and and there was a garden hose that was hooked up laying around the building, and somebody who was important, I was not one of them, said, Lunsford, get that hose and spray this little hot spot right here. So I grabbed the hose. The hose didn't come. I thought, well, it, it's, it was dark. I couldn't see. It was like midnight, you know. I don't know what's going on. So I just pulled on the thing and boom, there it came. And I got the hose and I did my little assignment. <laughs> Pretty soon a guy came around the corner and he says, Lunsford, what are you doing? <laughs> so that hose was in my hand. <laughs> Is your life in God's hands or yours? Are you pulling on it, trying to get it back? God wants us to put our life on the altar, leave it there, and live there. Heavenly Father, help us to live there. Boy, that's hard. Help us to live on that altar. May our lives show that we're living there. I pray in Christ's name, amen.